Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another pole position. We're very, very excited. I'm always excited when it comes down to Polish history, only because I am learning something new. I'm always learning something new. And yeah, we have not got 20th century history today. Sorry to my 20th century history friends, apologies, but you are going to learn something new, something really interesting. And this is not going to be the first podcast. So bear with me. I'll explain what I'm talking about. Let me introduce our first guest today. So we've got Darius von Gutner Spozinski. He is a medieval historian and a lecturer at Melbourne University. He has written books like Poland, Holy War and the Piast Monarchy, 1100 to 1230, and Writing History in Medieval Poland, Bishop Vicentius of Krakow and the Chronica, Chronica Polon. I can't even pronounce this last, last one. Darius, can you pronounce this last one for me? Perfect. Thank you so much. Again, Latin, can't do Latin. So welcome, welcome to our podcast. Uh, Pleasure to be here. We are really interested because this is not going to be just one podcast because we're going to be looking at the Piast dynasty, the monarchy, however you want to pronounce it. We're going to be doing this into a three-part series because I think these guys deserve so much more attention than in one 40-minute podcast. Don't you agree? Well, I, we can be speaking for hours about Piasts and, and generally about early Polish history. Uh, we may not know too much detail, but it is a pretty fascinating period in history. And from, you know, from, from what is there, we can make it, I don't know, many episodes. I love it. I think we should, uh, I think we should do this. Right. Okay. Because this all starts with a Slav, a Western Slav tribe of Polania. So can you tell us about them? Who were they and why are they so important? Look, the question, uh, the question is, we, we don't actually know the exact names of these people, uh, other than the, in, in, the, in the sources in the ninth century, uh, in the written uh, sources, we get uh, the kind of a corruption of the word Polania. So um, this, is, this is one of the tribes of the Western uh, Slavic tribes that, um, uh, that became prominent. Uh, prominent and perhaps one of uh, uh, led by quite forceful and ruthless leaders, they managed to consolidate um, the the territory and clearly ruled over a number of uh, of people. Um, we actually we don't know numerically how large uh, that uh, the tribe was and how large the territory originally was. But Western Slavs, they are people uh, you can you can say generally um, people of today's Poland and Eastern Germany. This is when we have the Western Slavs. Um, Western Slavs also include Czechs. So these, um, the, the Slavs in, uh, um, uh, how would you say it, on the uh, west side of the order, the uh, river, um, they are no longer, um, no longer a political or um, a national entity as such. Um, there are some of the communities still exist in existence, Sorbs, for example. But Western Slavs dominated this area, you would say, between Berlin and Warsaw. I think you can generalize that that's, that's where the Western Slavic tribes uh, were based. And one of the most prominent of, um, of those is uh, or was the, the tribe of Polania. Polania, the name that we have in Latin sources uh, in very, uh, you know, variant, variants of Polania, Polans. Poloni, um, that's what the 19th, uh, 9th century sources tell us about them. 
we don't really know where they came from, whether uh, they were based um, in the region between Berlin and Warsaw, for example. And of course, I, I need to remind us that neither Warsaw nor Berlin are in existence at the time. Um, but just, just to bring it to the, to the modern context, we don't know whether they um, originated from that particular place, whether they migrated. There are various theories, theories of um, conquest, theories of migration. We simply don't know. What we know that in the ninth century, they appear in Western European written sources as an already um, political entities in existence, kind of a proto-nations, a little nations in making. I've got to say, this is so interesting because we all talk about identity, especially now, because Polish identity now is so complex. It is not as simple as people um, from the outside seem to think. But this is even more complicated. So Poles, Pol Anya are coming from between the modern context, Berlin and, and Warsaw. And now the country is so different. Well, yes, we, we, in, in a way, there's, this is the perception that um, Adam Zamoyski's pointed to in, in one of his books when he said that uh, very often uh, foreigners imagine or live with the stereotypes that Polish borders really shifted that much. But if you look at the, at the examples of France or Germany or Austria or even uh, Bohemia, Czech Republic today, um, their borders shifted quite as much as the Polish borders did. So if we if we take um, uh, this Western Slav um, uh, groupings of of various tribal groups, families, um, we have the Western Slavs, the Sorbs, for example, um, and then we have Western Slavs, Poles across the both sides of the Oder River. Um, they are the main ones. Uh, yet uh, we know that um, Czech. Um, uh, the, the the Czech um, that that evolve uh, later on from the same um, uh, Western Slavic groupings, they share linguistic affinity, and this is perhaps uh, what we have at the time of the very early Piasts that um, people from the Czechs, uh, the Sorbs, and the Poles can communicate relatively easy. Um, uh, that's why perhaps in Polish, when you talk about a German person, they couldn't communicate with a person speaking German because, and they call them Niemcy, those dumb ones with, with whom we cannot communicate. This is the first kind of um, idea of that identity of us and them, the, the other, those with whom we do not share common tongue. Oh, now I know what Niemcy actually means. So Niemcy in Polish is Germany, and that, that comes from that far back in history. Yes, the dumb ones, we, the, those that don't speak our language. Yes. <laughs> I'm so sorry, guys. So let's talk about the Piast dynasty. First of all, where do they get their name? Because there is a legend. So can you tell us about this legend? And is there any truth in this legend? Look, what can we say about legend? Uh, legends have a tendency of having something real um, to start them off. So uh, even if you think about the names of the nations, uh, uh, Poles, um, uh, the, the Russians or the Rus and the Czechs, uh, I think you refer to the legends, um, uh, legend that um, uh, talks about three brothers that were traveling together. It almost sounds like a Harry Potter star, uh, story, you know, three brothers traveling through the bridge and they encounter a meeting, you know, with, there's a meeting with death. Uh, but I think in the legend, in that, that kind of uh, legend of the, of the Lech, Czech and Rus, um, there is no death that they meet, but they, um, uh, they kind of give, um, uh, they give beginning to their own nations. So the Lech becomes the progenitor of the Poles, the Czech you know, becomes the, um, the ancestor of the Czechs, and the Rus becomes the uh, progenitor of, of, uh, of uh, Russians, you can say. Uh, the, the legend, I think there are different derivatives of that legend. Um, it's essentially the one uh, where the national symbol of the Poles is, is prominently displayed. You know, the eagle, eagle's nest and the eagle that, um, uh, that uh, Lech spots and decides that this is going to be the place where he's going to uh, set his home and this is where uh, he's going to settle. This is quite a, you know, quite a, quite a curious um, legend that most likely um, comes from much later sources. And in a way, it's not linked to the name Piast at all. There's Lech, and the, you know the the the, the way um, later we use the name uh, Lechici sometimes in Polish for uh, to to talk about the Poles, 
instead of Polania. Um, Piast is not related to any of these legends, unfortunately. Piast is coming into being much later and um, perhaps relates uh, to a word Piastovac, you know, to, to hold an office or to, um, uh, to like Piastunka, the, um, the person they, they, that's, um, that takes care of a baby, uh, someone that holds the baby and, and, and nurses the baby. This is this kind of, um, of kind of word. Now, it probably comes um, as late as the 15th century when uh, Polish writers, history, Polish historians, history writers or chroniclers are coming to give names to uh, those uh, ancient rulers, to uh, those original holders of the, the highest office in the land. And they come perhaps um, with the legend of the Piast, and uh, they come with uh, um, with the story, of, and there, of course we have different stories of who Piast was, and including the one um, uh, story about Popiel and uh, and mice. Uh, but Piast seemed to be that that word that is um, that is referring to a cradle, to uh, um, to 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 something that is the beginning. And it's a funny kind of name. We don't encounter it in any early documents. Uh, Mieszko the first. Um, the one that um, uh, we know as the first uh, ruler, ruler of uh, of the Poles that we have uh, solid records about. We know that he doesn't call himself, or oh, I'm a Piast dynast, or I'm the head of the Piast dynasty. So the name of Piast is very much given to the dynasty, to the first historical Polish dynasty, much later on. So we're going to talk about Mieszko, uh, who is... The, the first ruler of Poland. We're also going to talk about his son Bolesław. So those are the two that we're going to be talking about in this podcast. But I, I'm, I'm going to embarrass myself here. So over the summer, I spent some time teaching English to children and they asked me to do a history quiz. Now, of course, the modern historian can do anything from modern history, decides to go into Google and misread everything about Mieszko uh, the first, because you got to remember, I did this at Polish school when I was like 13 or 12, and that's been a long time. And genius here decided to put down that uh, who was the first king of Poland? Mieszko the first. So cue the laughter, everybody. So yes, um, Mieszko was a ruler, not a king. I will forever have that burnt into my memory. So he's the first ruler that, um, well, he converts Poland uh, and himself to Christianity. But do we know anything about his early life at all? Not really. No, we don't. Um, there are perhaps uh, three three sources uh, that are very, very brief. One is uh, Tietmar Merseburg, who, who kind of writes a little bit about this, about the, the, the baptism and uh, conversion of Poland. Um, uh, perhaps we have some accounts from Gallus uh, or from anonymous uh, author who who conventionally is called uh, Gallus, although that that name is is challenged quite recently. And then we have um, Bishop um, Vincentius of Krakow, or otherwise known as uh, uh, Vincenti Kadłubek in in, uh, in, in Poland. Uh, What we know about Mieszko from those early sources is that, one, that he is recognized as the overlord of those tribes known as Polania, that his kingdom uh, is quite, um, he's, he's referred to uh, by some uh, travellers from as far as Spain as the ruler of the north. Um, he clearly is a quite powerful warlord. Perhaps that's why the, you know, the prince or a king or a duke, um, it's very much coming from Latin. And it's, you know, did Western Slavs refer to their leaders as dukes or princes or kings? Perhaps not. But we know he is uh, on the top. He's the head of that particular political unit. And he appears there already in the middle of the, of the 9th century, uh, sorry, 10th century, um, as, a, um, as a person of note, as a person that, um, that empire is already looking um, to, to keep order um, um, in, in those borderlands between um, the territories that he rules, so let's say um, approximately modern modern um, Western Poland, and territories that empire uh, is attempting to conquer. So um, when the first information about him 
is um, the one that he's engaging in in some battles with some German rebels, that he's quite um, a good warrior, that he command troops that um, uh, that are successful uh, in defending their own homeland and that they are very successful in attacking others and subjugating um, tribes um, to, to west of their domain. So um, when we encounter information about Mieszko and his baptism, there are different ver- versions of it. And... Um, Versions that suggest that he reached out to um, to the Czechs to ask them for um, information about this new religion uh, that was so powerful, so predominant in Western Europe. Um, there is another version that first he got married to Dobrava of Bohemia, to daughter of the prince of the Czechs, and she taught him and, in fact, instructed him about what were the principles of um, this new religion that was coming um, from the West. Uh, there, is, uh, there is another uh, another suggestion that he cemented his, um, his alliance with the leader of the Czechs by marrying his daughter and at the same time agreeing that he's going to become a um, Christian. So, so there is a, there's a quite a lot of things that we don't know because there is no... Um, we don't have uh, precise written sources, precise information about what was the chronology of this event. What we know and what we, I guess, Polish historians are arguing for quite some time, the date of 966 being the year when we agree that Mieszko was baptized. And some of the chroniclers straight away assume that his baptism brought all of his subjects into Christianity. Um, I guess historians doubt this. The suggestion is that when Mieszko accepted baptism and became uh, Christian, that some of his um, immediate court um, perhaps accepted Christianity, but there is nothing to suggest that anyone else in Poland immediately accepted Christianity. In fact, if you if we think about the customs, um, uh, that that kind of pa- a lot of pagan customs uh, were uh, surviving, you know, well into the 12th century, you would say. There is another theory, though, but we are going to cover that a little bit later. Just just to add another theory into the mix for fun, because we can. Um, sticking to well, it is a bit, bit about Christianity, but he marries the Czech princess. How much do we know about about this marriage? Well, we know that it happened probably uh, in uh, 965. So we the, this is this is perhaps the information that is uh, more certain um, because it is passed to us uh, through Polish annals. So the, the very ancient kind of recordings of, of just uh, single events with the yearly dates. So 965, we know that Dobrava arrived um, uh, at Mieszko's court. Um, there are various kind of suggestions that he was, she was perhaps an older woman, um, as some of the German chroniclers suggest. Um, what we know that um, the marriage um, happens at that time. We also know that Mieszko's conversion happens later on. So in a way, the role of the wife here perhaps is quite significant. She brings him around to Christianity. And later we know that in 967, their son Boleslav is born. Uh, it, it, this is this is perhaps all that we know uh, of the marriage. Um, uh, he Mieszko, according to the pagan Slavic tradition, most likely had numerous wives, and I think all the early chroniclers are suggesting that Mieszko um, was convinced by Dobrava on her arrival at Polish court um, that um, he should renounce those pagan wives. And I think the number was given as six wives in in one of the accounts, um, that he should renounce those wives and only then she would marry him. And together when when they were married, he he will then accept baptism and initiate the Christianization of his subjects. She must have been some woman to lay down those laws. I suspect, I suspect, um, uh, like other uh, famous women in, in history of uh, of the Poles, uh, like uh, Riheza, of uh, um, uh, wife of uh, Mieszko's uh, namesake, Mieszko II, uh, like Królowa Jadwiga, 
um, uh, like um, uh, Elżbieta Habsburżanka, like uh, Bonasforza Daragona, for example, um, or like Marysienka, uh, those famous uh, wives of um, Polish monarchs, or like Anna Jagielonka, for example, the queen uh, the, that is elected king, and the same with Jadwiga. Um, so, so, so there are famous women that were strong um, persuaders, you can say. And Dobrava perhaps is the first that we know in sources, the first that is kind of historically based in time, um, princess who becomes a spouse of the Polish ruler that clearly exerts enormous amount of authority that brings him over to Christianity and then um, gives the, uh, the, the, you know, the beginning to the Piast dynasty as such. I kind of wish we knew more about her because she's she seems like a real badass. Difficult to say. Uh, look, if the chroniclers are, are correct, and if she arrives, uh, and then there are lovely six wives uh, standing there on the side, um, I don't think she would be particularly happy about this, given that um, uh, Dobrava is already Christian. Uh, so um, she already has uh, leaves within certain different set of principles. Uh, the marriage was between uh, men and a woman, but it was a just one on one marriage. It was not one with six or seven wives. It didn't work that way. So I suspect it might have been a little bit of a cultural shock. But if she was surprised, uh, she clearly worked very, very hard on Mieszka to make sure that she became the only Christian wife and the only wife uh, in practice. So apart from badass women that we love on this podcast, clearly, we love a bit of Vikings because they come and play a role in this narrative, don't they? What, what happens with the Vikings? Oh, look what happens with the Vikings. It seems that um, Vikings are almost like Poles. They always feature, in, whenever you talk about uh, European history, it seems to be that Poland is somehow involved. Now, uh, somehow Vikings are involved in everything too. Um, later on, <laughs> Mongol, Mongols would be involved in everything. Um, the Viking connection, there are different theories as well about relationship or um, or intermarriages between the Piasts, the dynasty that Mieszko is representing in the 10th century, um, and the Vikings. Uh, there is a theory uh, that perhaps um, his daughter um, is uh, so-called um, Świętosława or Sigrid the Haughty, um, a Scandinavian queen that um, later um, uh, gives birth to uh, Canute the Great, um, so you've got a further kind of complication of uh, um, of history. Um, it seems uh, that archaeology suggests uh, to, to us that um, Vikings were very much present in the territories under Piast control. Um, there are various traces of their presence. And look, could it be that it is like a, like another story of, of, uh, of, you know, the Vikings, the TV series, uh, that Piasts are, in fact, um, uh, like in Rus, uh, the Piasts are, in fact, uh, some sort of an offshoot of, of a Viking um, warlord who settled in the territory and gave um, um, gave uh, beginning to the Piast dynasty. Look, of course, look, this is this is the theory that Polish historians no longer like. It was popular at some, at some time. Uh, it's kind of no longer accepted as a viable theory. Again, hypothesis, very much theory with um, just uh, wishful thinking. And and if you have a lot of fantasy, I think that would work. I mean, the Vikings TV series, I you know what, six series now? I think, I think so. I mean, I have, personally, I've not watched it. And now you're talking about this, I might have to start watching. Do they show the Polish, Polish nation in it? No, I don't think they do. I don't think they do. I, I haven't seen the six series. They're just about to open in Australia in a couple of weeks. Um, but I think uh, it's a pretty realistic, if a little bit fantastic, way of showing Vikings as being not this kind of homogeneous group of, of Scandinavian warriors, but as quite complex society, um, very much human, very much um, living on the edge of world with curiosity and with um, quite a pride and this kind of push to know more. So brilliant TV series. I'm going to have to start watching it, I think, because um, I, it keeps coming up on my Netflix saying, watch me, watch me. And I'm like, no, but I want to stick to modern. It's far more interesting. But you might be tempting me to the dark side. Oh, why not? It's, it's a pretty dark side. Yes. <laughs> it's, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll. 
<laughs> in the ancient time. Well, ancient, gosh, in the in the medieval times. Early medieval times, yes. Yeah. Okay, so well, at this point, Mishko does expand his empire, doesn't he? I mean, how does he end up doing that? There, there are again. We are um, subject to to a lot of theories by a number of historians, um, some more prominent than others. Uh, that original stronghold that uh, Polania hold is perhaps around Poznan in Wielkopolska, so Greater Poland for us. That um, we don't actually know that uh, we, where the actual capital city is based. Traditionally, you know, Poznan gets um, quite a good write up in this. But um, there is a theory that perhaps city of Gech um, was the center of Mieszko's state. Uh, but that state, um, and, and I guess state in English sounds a little bit, um, it's not appropriate, but the realm of, of Polania under Mieszko's command extends um, all the way to, um, uh, through Wielkopolska towards, towards modern Warsaw and towards Mazovia that way, and then, um, and then towards Silesia, Shlonsk. But Silesia is not part of it. So it is very small, um, um, a small realm. And it looks that early Poles are very much um, uh, organized um, as, a, as a very good um, uh, offensive um, force. So Mieszko, together with his uh, warriors, is able to subjugate um, his northern neighbors. Um, so uh, perhaps, um, you know, we would refer to them Pomeranians today. Um, the uh, the Western Slavs that lived along the sea, Pomeranians. Um, then um, Mieszko moves to against uh, Mazovians and uh, brings them in under his control. Um, he then perhaps goes as far as um, as almost modern um, borders of Poland, where Lublin is. Um, and the, the, the one of the tribes there is called Lenjania. So so that goes. Um, uh, get it goes pretty pretty far east in in that respect um then at some point uh, perhaps uh, not um, not long before Mieszko's death in 992 um the lands of um, Kraków are incorporated into his realm and perhaps at the same time uh, beyond the Oder river he reaches out to conquer Shlomsk so Silesia um becomes part of his realm. If you look at the map, um, that border, um, uh, of course, look, this is this is very much hi- hypothetical, but the expansion um, very much matches the, the, the modern uh, Polish border as such. Again, it, this expansion is based on a quite well-organized um, strategic, strategic um, um, war um, machine uh, based on uh, not mercenaries as such. We don't know that much about mercenaries, but about um, about the the warriors that under command of uh, Piast leaders are able to quite quickly um, uh, overcome opposition from those tribes to the north, to the east, and to the south. And in that way, this kind of uh, basic. Um, you would say Poland is built uh, by the by the the end of uh, Mieszko's life in 992. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I 
have a very strange question. So at the moment you're referring to like um, Silesians, uh, Mazovians. Is that what the tribes were called at the time? Look, we don't we don't actually know um, exact names of those people as such. We have some um, some records which give us um, description of Mieszko's realm, and in those um, accounts, there are names of the bordering um, um, tribes. So, for example, the Pomeranians, um, the Prussians are listed there, uh, the Mazovians, Lenjania, um, the people inhabiting Krakow, or, or they are referred to as Krakow and then Silesians. So we've got those first Latin attempts to give the sounds of what locals were saying when they were talking about themselves and then transcribing Latin script. So you can say, yes, those names that kind of corrupted exist today um, were already in usage at the time. And and I guess my, my suggestion is that, um, that those Latin scribes um, tried to record the sounds that they heard about, you know, what what is the tribe? It's Polania. What is the tribe? Silesians. That they captured sounds of those um, of those names that way. That is so interesting. That I love that. I'm, I'm actually going to use this now when I talk to people about Polish history. So I really want to thank you. This is some seriously amazing content about the early early um, Polish nation kingdom uh lands whichever word you want to you want to use take your pick anybody um let's stick just a little bit longer with Mieszko so some people say he was a brutal and ruthless ruler obviously how much do we know into that well we again this is um the accounts of um, his reign are very very um uh limited uh, there is some information coming from Ibrahim Indiakub, who is who is a, tr- a Jewish trader from from Spain, and who gives a description of Mieszko's realm, but in quite positive terms. Uh, Mieszko is presented uh, there as a genu- uh, generous and caring ruler, um, the person who provides for his warriors, um, for his and for the families of those warriors. Um, the fellow who, the ruler, the the master of um, of that state that is of that of the realm that is taking care of the needs of his subjects. Um, example, we want uh, taxation, uh, taxation, for example, um, and and clearly it's also a person that that is reported to. Uh, to be taking care of, and this is coming from uh, Christian sources, of course, spiritual. Um, so the propagation, you know, pro- propagation of uh, what's what's the better word? Um, Christianization of his people. So um, cruel, I don't know. Um, the sources seem to suggest that he clearly uh, must have been a quite a good strategist and a warrior himself. That he was able to consolidate and push other tribes to accept his rule. I mean, you don't achieve this just by going and speaking to those people. Uh, back in those days, um, life was pretty brutal. And I, and, and I, I imagine that what Mieszko and his um, army did, um, they were quite brutal to bring Pomeranians or Prussians or Mazovians or Silesians under their rule. On the other hand, as I said, accounts from those travelers um, give a picture of a generous and thoughtful and a, you would say a good um, good master to, to his people. Okay, we're going to move on to Mieszko's son, Bolesław. Um, just so everybody knows, this is the first king of Poland. This is the mistake that I made. <laughs> Instead of Mieszko, it is Bolesław. But we're going, to, we're going to get to that stage in a minute. So he has a son, Bolesław. He is Mieszko's heir. Do we know anything about it? Please tell me we know something about his early life. About Mieszko? No, we don't really know that much. Uh, Bolesław, um, Bolesław's early life. I mean, sorry, Bolesław. Uh, we we don't know that much other than um, clearly he is um, brought up in the spirit of the conquests um, of his father. Um, at the same time that he must be clearly a, a quite a skillful and strong ruler. Because in fact, he consolidates the achievements of his father. He's able to further extend the territory of his kingdom 
And we're talking about kingdom. He's crowned um, shortly before his death in 1025. But he expands he the, the kingdom in uh, in different direction. Um, the legend uh, tells us that he goes as far as Kiev um, in uh, in one of his expedition in the early 11th century. Um, that he uh, settles a lot of things with the Czechs. That he goes against other Western Slavs in the West, um, against the Sorbs and others. Um, that he then hosts um, um, the Congress of Gniezno, uh, where the emperor, the Roman uh, emperor, arrives in Poland and is greeted and hosted in um, in Gniezno and Poznan by uh, by Boleslaw himself. And that's a sign of uh, Boleslaw's uh, stature. It's also a recognition, perhaps, of um, that um, the territories of the Piasts are seen now as being quite extensive and therefore um, therefore unnoticed by the rulers of the R- German um, German Empire and Otto the Third uh, Otto the First young and um, very idealistic emperor uh, seem to be recognizing and this is this is the the, uh, the voice that we hear in Polish chronicles recognizes Boleslaw as his um, 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 as his co builder of this universal imperial vision of Christian Europe uh, and harmony and living, you know, you would say, in in Christian kind of peace. Otto III is very much, um, um, well, he's he's very enthusiastic about bringing Poland and Boleslaw's realm into that universal empire vision uh, and in a way to settle to settle differences between perhaps the, the Germans advancing east and the Poles defending themselves uh, on slightly different bases, not just the violence, not just perpetual war. Of course, this situation changes after Otto III dies. So Boleslaw, perhaps wise, perhaps uh, one of the Polish kings uh, that uh, uh, deserves um, um, the appellation, the great um, uh, Hrobry, uh, referring to, to you know to his um, valiant um, or the brave nature of the king, but perhaps all, also referred to as uh, Boleslaw the Great, uh, one of those dukes that managed to secure his coronation and uh, the one that becomes king of Poland in 1025. So does he get married at all? And does he have any children? I mean, I'm assuming he does, considering the Piast dynasty carries on. Oh goodness! You know he is. He is. He's not quite Henry VIII um, in terms of wives, but almost there. Um, it's possible that uh, there are at least four wives. That there is a, and again, we don't know much about uh, the first of his wives. Um, there is a suggestion that perhaps it was a prince's. Um, or a daughter of a warlord somewhere from um, the um, uh, the West, but West in a sense of, of Slavic West. Um, we know that perhaps second wife is a princess from Hungary. Then we know that, that one of his favorite wives is Emilda of Luzatia, so another Western Slavic um, nation. And the final is Oda um, from Mason. Um, that is the, the final wife. And... Um, uh, the, the one that features um, uh, later on in, in various uh, dramas of the Piast dynasty. And f- from those four wives, we know that um, uh, Miesz, not Mieszko, the Boleslav, Boleslav Hrobre, has a number of children. The eldest is called Besprim, uh, but it is, um, it is Mieszko II, um, his son from Emilda of Luzatia, that he is chosen to be the heir and successors of Mieszko, of Mieszko, of Boleslaw. Goodness, we're only on to second Mieszko, and I'm kind of, um, I'm kind <laughs> of now being confused. Mieszko the first, Boleslaw Hrobry, and now Mieszko, Mieszko the second. It's a, it's a bit like uh, when we talk about uh, England in the medieval period. You've got your Henry, your Matilda, your Mary, and is that Mary? Which Mary? That Mary? Oh, that Mary. That right, okay. So yes, family trees and those relationships quite important. Um, you see, it's Boleslav Hrobry seemed to be one of those very charismatic uh, rulers of whom both the anonymous um, known as Gallus and um, 
and Bishop Vincentius of Krakow write extensively. He is the one um, that seemed to be setting the tone for all other rulers, uh, Polish um, leader, Polish um, 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 uh, uh, ruler needs to be a crowned king. Um, he is equal to the emperors uh, because emperors treat him as equal. He is part of, of this big Christian family of um, crowned, crowned rulers. Um, he is the Rex Latin for king. Uh, it is very interesting kind of a concept that Boleslav um, sets the tone for all other Polish kings and every of those kings uh, in the Piast dynasty will try to be like that uh, ancestor of theirs, uh, Boleslav Chrobry. He set the bar really, really high. Yep, he did. Okay, so we've touched already on this about his dedication to Christianity, but who was more dedicated, him or his father? Good question. Can we really judge it in, in this way? Can we really talk along this way? You know, Mieszko de Finley is credited um, with um, accepting Christianity for himself, accepting bas- baptism, and then taking the first steps to introduce Christianity to his subjects. Uh, Bolesław um, takes it further, and perhaps this is incremental. Um, Bolesław is already brought up as a Christian. Uh, Bolesław um, uh, is supporting, for example, Christian missions, one of the very famous uh, missions of uh, um, Bishop Adalbert of Prague in 997, um, the mission that um, uh, gets Adalbert killed by the Prussians, and that brings the first Polish saint, the first Polish saint patron, whose body then is uh, um, uh, uh, regained, retrieved from the Prussians uh, by Bolesław and placed in a shrine in Gniezno. So, look, it's very difficult to say whether you can put the kind of a value, whether Mieszko Bolesław is, is, is more Christian or more religious or more adept at following the, um, the, the Christian church. Um, certainly both of them made those first steps towards Christianizing their subjects. And by no means during the reign of Bolesław uh, I, um, there is no um, suggestion that all of the Poles, all the subjects, all his subjects were Christianized. We kind of, we, we understand that perhaps the court elites and uh, leaders of in different provinces were very much accepting Christianity and moving towards um, uh, building Christian churches and cathedrals and establishing a new um, kind of ecclesiastical hierarchy for Poland. Um, but we can't say that, for example, the conquests in Mazovia, that, that Mazovians straight away accepted Christianity. Very difficult to say. I think we should throw that theory in here. I think it's the ideal point. So there is another theory about the um Polish conversion to Christianity, and that it was actually Bolesław who converted Poland to Christianity and not Mieszko. What do you think? How does this theory supposed to work? I don't know. (laughs) You've got to tell me. Help me out here. (laughs) Because this is a very very interesting suggestion. Um, I don't know. I never kind of entertain the idea that it was Bolesław who was the, uh, the person that was converting the Poles to Christianity. I always looked um, through, um, uh, through the eyes of those early Polish annals and chroniclers that placed firmly and squarely Christianization of the Poles as initiated by Mieszko. So can't really discuss this theory, not, not one that I'm very familiar with, I would say. I'd say, uh, to be honest, it is a bit of a far-fetched theory because it, it was something that, that came up, funny enough, when I was doing a bit more research. And it was like, it was actually Boleslav who converted Poland to Christianity. I was like, really? Okay, when was this supposed to happen? So what, we're throwing this back a, a couple of like 20, 30, 40 years and we're completely off. Hmm. Interesting, because um, we can't deny that the information given to us in the sources... Um, is the only one that we can really um, rely on. And that information is that uh, Dobrava arrives in 965, 
that Mieszko accepts baptism in 966 and Boleslav is born in 967. So um, Christianity is already there. The first mission from the West with Bishop uh, Jordan arrives in Poznan also around um, that early days and Christianization begins perhaps even you can claim that is Dobrava who's supposed to receive more credit for Christianization of Poland than anyone else. So let's throw this theory out of the window. Gone now. Yep, let's do it. Defenestration of theory, yes. Totally gone. Okay, we've already brought up the Germans once, twice, maybe three times. We're now going to bring up the Germans one more time. Um, yep. Talk to us about his relationship with, with the Germans at the time. With Bolesław? Bolesław and Germans. Yes, Bolesław, not Mieszkon Germans, but Bolesław and Germans. Uh, it is an, an interesting relationship because uh, I suspect um, Mieszko, because of his military prowess, because of his um, military potential, is able to reach out and settle disputes in neighbouring countries. By going west, he's, of course, stepping on German toes because the territory between his realm at that time and um, the, um, the marches of Saxony, for example, and Mason, um, they are encroaching on Slavic lands because, you know, we used to, to, to look at Germany and we look at Germany and Berlin and that whole area there, the East Germany, and we kind of say, okay, Germany. But back then, in the 10th century, um, there is no uh, Germany in that place. It is the, um, the confederation of Slavic tribes um, around um, the Slavic Branibor, for example. That's, that's the, the uh, town before Berlin was established there. Um, in those marches um, that are uh, established by the Germans, there's very much a fight between uh, Lusitians and Germans and then Poles as well. Um, there is, it's, it's quite a strange relationship, you would say. Because by his, by Germans recognize that Boleswak I is in fact a ruler that can use armed forces efficiently. And because of those um, powerful armies, he's able to face the German armies uh, in the open field and he's able to win on numerous occasions. So um, that early relationship after Boleswak comes to the throne in 992, that early relationship is interesting because it brings in the power of the emperor. Otto III, um, when he ascends the throne, he's very much interested in, in what's happening. In, what is this Poland? I think he's curious. His friend, Adalbert of Prague, the missionary that we already mentioned, um, when he dies, uh, this is uh, the, the point at which Otto III decides that he will travel to meet with Boleslav and he will travel to Poland and to see what this, this uh, new realm in the north, the realm that just appeared on Christian map, what is this all about? I think that that relationship at this point changes. The emperor is recognizing Boleslav's right to the crown. Boleslav is, according to those um, early chroniclers, taking uh, took you know one of those meetings. He takes um, his own crown crown off his head and places it on Boleslav's head. So there is a um, um, there is an interesting, uh, if not friendship, there is a recognition of um, the power and you know political and economic value of relationship with that, that Polish ruler. Um, after um, Otto dies, um, a relationship between Boleslav and the next emperor, Henry, it deteriorates. So by, the ta- by 1025, um, for, for, for about 20 years, uh, Boleslav is trying to get the crown approved by the Pope, and German emperor is very keen on preventing him from doing this. So definitely that relationship after death of Otto III deteriorates and um, Poles and Germans enter this stage of, uh, of history where they are seen to be enemies on both sides. Germans are looking at the Poles with suspicion and the Poles are looking at Germans as invaders. I've got to say, I mean, this early, very early relationship with Otto, I think Emperor Otto was really positive to hear that there is there was something good between the two nations. 
And then it just deteriorates. And I'm assuming that's where our, I don't even know how to describe it, our enemies or how, we just don't look at each other in a positive way anymore from that moment. And it's lasted through to, well, even today. Well, I think that today um, it's another myth, you know, uh, uh, it's another myth that uh, uh, Germans were always um, enemies of the Poles because there were times when uh, the Poles were relatively in good relationship. If you think about the wives of the Jagiellon dynasty later on, um, Elżbieta Habsburgzanka, she comes from imperial German house after all. Um, if you uh, look at other wives of Sigmund uh, um, uh, II, August, um, uh, Elżbieta, um, again, again, another of the Habsburg daughters, uh, so Elizabeth Habsburg and then Catherine Habsburg. Um, you've got other Habsburg wives in later kings. So um, very often those queens bring a certain uh, relationship, certain, um, uh, certain um, perhaps um, you would say, um, um, like a, uh, how would you say, detent, detente in terms of it, it becomes a, it becomes a slightly different relationship. But um, I think it's a, it's a bit of a myth, myth of history that Germans and Poles were enemies for you know for the last thousand years. I think we we can't generalize that widely. So instead of saying more of a straight line kind of relationship, it was an up and down relationship rather than something so straightforward as saying we were just enemies. Oh, I, I totally agree. Yes. And I would see it that way. I would say that uh, at the time of Otto III, um, there was a chance of seeing of uh, inclusion of Poland into that Europe, into that united, new, bright Europe. And I don't know if, you, if you've seen that image of, um, uh, from one of, um, one of the very rich, richly decorated manuscripts, uh, which, shows, which shows four women um, bringing um, uh, and bowing down in in homage to um, Otto the Third, and to, uh, four women bringing gifts representing traditionally uh, Roma, so Italy, the power of, of Italy, Gallia, so the, the Frankish realms, uh, Germania, so Germany, and then Slovenia, um, personification of of the Slavs. Um, those four women's um, personification of those parts of the Christian universal empire um, pay homage to the emperor seated seated on the imperial throne. This is quite an interesting vision. So um, if you think about, if you look at Europe from that point of view, um, that kind of permanent enemy-enemy situation for a thousand years doesn't really work. Uh, I think I agree with you. It's very much up and down kind of relationship. I love this. I've really got to tell you, this is this is a fantastic podcast and I am learning so much that I didn't even know that for me, actually, this is becoming really important for my own research and my own understanding uh, of the Polish nation, where it started. And um, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm definitely going to be ranting and raving about this for the next six months. So um, let's move on to the end because we, we're coming towards the end. Um, he actually, Bolesław actually becomes king of Poland. I mean, obviously he's a, he's a duke, kind of however you want to describe it at this point. He is not a king, but he becomes king. How does this happen? That uh, is a, I, my kind of, my vision of this past is that Paul's, perhaps didn't really care about um, the crown. That crown became something very accidental uh, and became something that they observe was important in the West. And they looked at those Latin phrases like rex and dux, you know, king and, and duke. Um, and that became important because of that cultural transfer that was happening at the time in order to be seen as equal to the emperors, to the great emperors of the past, you need to have a crown. You need to have your laurel leaf wreath on your head. And when Otto III does this ceremonial, you would say, crowning of um, Boleslav the Brave at the Congress of Gniezno, um, that perhaps gives Boleslav the idea that that recognition by the emperor of this supreme status 
among the Slavic rulers of Boleslav, that this needs to be formalized also by the Pope. And uh, we understand that early death of Otto III prevented crowning, uh, receiving the crown by um, Boleslav himself. And that um, Boleslav was very much working towards receiving the crown consecrated by the Pope for quite some time. Emperor uh, Henry II in essentially, um, essentially prevented this happening. And it, it's, the coronation is a bit of a tricky thing. There is a, there is a brilliant picture of um, I mean, picture painting uh, made by uh, Jan Mateko, a famous uh, Polish painter of the 19th century, um, where uh, Bolesław is being crowned uh, and Bolesław receives crowns crowned with uh, the blessing of the emperor, uh, which we know is a bit of work of fiction because what happens in 1024, Henry II emperor, Henry II dies. At this point, um, Boleslav takes advantage of the instability of German throne um, itself and crowns himself. Um, we know that um, some... Um, some uh, Western chroniclers, um, including um, including those that very much were siding with the next emperor, with, with Conrad II, um, are commenting that uh, Boleslav, um, the Slavic ruler, uh, you know, the Duke of the Poles, he takes the crown for himself without any regard to the power of the emperor, that he usurps uh, insignia of the king, and he takes... Um, takes the royal name uh, without agreement of the emperor. Um, look, we don't actually know exactly how it happened. Boleslav is crowned, um, um, perhaps, um, perhaps at Easter, perhaps at Christmas. We don't know the exact time of his coronation. Um, and I think um, the assumption is, and there are different historians um, that suggest different things. I know that Tadeusz Wojciechowski years ago um, suggested it was um, um, Christmas Day. Um, other historians uh, look at Easter time. Um, so um, he is crowned. He's crowned in his own land. Um, he's crowned uh, with the crown that, that becomes legendary. This is the first um, uh, coronation insignia of Poland. This is the first time that, in the eyes of Western Christianity, Poland uh, receive um, uh, uh, received the crown a permission uh, from Pope. And uh, this is Pope John uh, the um, the Nineteenth, um, who at the time is assumed that who at the time sanctioned that coronation uh, by local bishops. And um, in theory, could Emperor Conrad um, prevented this um, coronation? Perhaps um, uh, yes, perhaps not. Um, we know that, um, and this is some of the German um, chroniclers at the time um, being kind of outraged with this coronation, uh, leave the comment at the end in their accounts of it. Um, look, the crown didn't really um, fit his head for long because he soon died. We, we know that he dies perhaps in June after his coronation. So if the coronation took place, yeah, on Christmas Day, then he leaves another six months and dies. This is not the end. I mean, we are going to be continuing talking about, obviously, the Piast dynasty with uh, kings and dukes and th things that are falling apart in Poland, because it's, it's not quite as straightforward, is it, that it just goes from king to king to king next, is it? Of course it's not, because we're going to have also Polish pagans will raise up very soon after this coronation and they will say, no, we don't want Christianity. We don't want Christian churches. We want to destroy all of those um, uh, outrageous, um, outrageous symbols of foreign religion. And um, this pagan reaction will take over and destroy majority of, of, the, of the things that Piast dynasty built. Right. We're going to save this for podcast number two. So do come back because part two, we're going to be talking about Mieszko II and Kazimierz Odnowiciel, who uh, in English, if I'm not uh, not wrong, it's uh, Kazimierz the Restorer. Yes, very much so. I'm really excited because um, we're going to be talking about lots of uh, uprisings and things that basically go wrong. So do stay tuned. Dariusz, thank you so much for joining us because this is excellent. I have learned so much 
that I am going to go away today buzzing and go onto Twitter and just bombard everybody with some really cool... Actually, I'm not going to give it all away, but I'm going to give it away that we're doing talking about some really cool stuff about Polish history. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. Pleasure to to be with you and talking about Piast Dynasty. And I'm looking forward to, to our next installment. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Elena and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 